Section 12 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 12 Darwin. Part 2. The idea of evolution took a firm hold upon the mind of Darwin in an instant one day while on board the Beagle. From that very hour, the thought of the mutability of species was the one controlling impulse of his life. On his return from the trip around the world, he found himself in possession of an immense mass of specimens and much data bearing directly upon the point that creation is still going on. That he could ever sort sift and formulate his evidence on his own account he never at this time imagined indeed about all he thought he could do was to present his notes and specimens to some scientific society in the hope that some of its members would go ahead and use the material and with this thought in mind he began to open correspondence with several of the universities and with various professors of science and to his dismay found that no one was willing even to read his notes, much less house, prepare for preservation, and index his thousands of specimens. He read papers before different scientific societies, however, from time to time, and gradually in London it dawned upon the few thinkers that this modest and low-voiced young man was doing a little thinking on his own account. One man to whom he offered the specimens bluntly explained to Darwin that his specimens and ideas were valuable to no one but himself, and it was folly to try to give such things away. Ideas are like children, and should be cared for by their parents, and specimens are for the collector. Seeing the depression of the young man, this friend offered to present the matter to the secretary of the exchequer. Everything can be done when the right man takes hold of it. The sum of one thousand pounds was appropriated by the Treasury for Charles Darwin's use in bringing out a government report of the voyage of the Beagle, and Darwin set to work, refreshed, rejoiced, and encouraged. He was living in London in modest quarters, solitary and alone. He was not handsome, and he lacked the dash and flash that made a success in society. On a trip to his old home, he walked across the country to see his uncle, Josiah Wedgwood II. When he left, it was arranged that he should return in a month and marry his cousin, Emma Wedgwood, and it was all so done. One commentator said he married his cousin because he didn't know any other woman that would have him, but none was so unkind as to say that he married her in order to get rid of her and yet Henslow wondered how he ceased wooing science long enough to woo the lady. Doubtless the parents of both parties had a little to do with the arrangement, and in this instance it was beautiful and well. Darwin was married to his work, and no such fallacy as marrying a woman in order to educate her filled his mind. His wife was his mental mate, his devoted helper and friend. It is no small matter for a wife to be her husband's friend. Mrs. Darwin had no small aspirations of her own. She flew the futile four o'clock and made no flannel nightgowns for Fiji's. Twenty years after his marriage, Darwin wrote thus. It is probably as you say. 
I have done an enormous amount of work and this was only possible through the devotion of my wife who ignoring every idea of pleasure and comfort for herself arranged in a thousand ways to give me joy and rest peace and most valuable inspiration and assistance if i occasionally lost faith in myself she most certainly never did only two hours a day could i work and these to her were sacred she guarded me as a mother guards her babe and i look back now and see how hopelessly undone i should have been without her in eighteen hundred forty two darwin and his wife moved to the village of down county of kent the place where they lived was a rambling old stone house with ample garden the country was rough and unbroken and one might have imagined he was a thousand miles from london instead of twenty there were no aristocratic neighbors no society to speak of with the plain farmers and simple folk of the village darwin was on good terms he became treasurer of the local improvement society and thereby was serenaded once a year by a brass band we hear of the good old village rector once saying mr darwin knows botany better than anybody this side of kew and although i am sorry to say that he seldom goes to church yet he is a good neighbor and almost a model citizen together the clergyman and his neighbor discussed the merits of climbing roses morning glories and sweet peas darwin met all and every one on terms of absolute equality and never forced his scientific hypotheses upon any one in fact no one in the village imagined this quiet country gentleman in the dusty gray clothes that matched his full iron-gray beard was destined for a place in westminster abbey no not even himself darwin's father seeing that the government had recognized him and that all the scientific societies of london were quite willing to do as much settled on him an allowance that was ample for his simple wants on the death of dr darwin Charles became possessed of an inheritance that brought him a yearly income of a little over five hundred pounds Children came to bless this happy household seven in all and with these Darwin was both comrade and teacher Two hours a day were sacred to science But outside of this time the children made the study their own and littered the place with their collections gathered on Heath and Dale the recognition of the holy time was strong in the minds of the children so no prohibitions were needed one daughter has written in familiar way of once wanting to go into a father's study for a forgotten pair of scissors it was the holy time and she thought she could not wait so she took off her shoes and entered in stocking feet hoping to be unobserved her father was working at his microscope he saw her reached out one arm as she passed drew her to him and kissed her forehead the little girl never again trespassed how could she with the father that gave her only love that there was no sternness in this recognition of the value of the working hours is further indicated in that little francis aged six once put his head in the door and offered the father a sixpence if he would come out and play in the garden for several years darwin was village magistrate most of the cases brought before him were either for poaching or drunkenness he always seemed to be trying to find an excuse for the prisoner and usually succeeded says his son one time when a prosecuting attorney complained because he had discharged a prisoner darwin who might have fined the impudent attorney for contempt of court merely said 
why he's as good as we are if tempted in the same way i'm sure that i would have done as he has done we can't blame a man for doing what he has to do this was poor reasoning from a legal point of view darwin afterward admitted that he didn't hear much of the evidence as his mind was full of orchids but the fellow looked sorry and he really couldn't punish anybody who had simply made a mistake the local legal lights gradually lost faith in magistrate darwin's peculiar brand of justice he hadn't much respect for law and once when a lawyer cited him the criminal code he said tut tut that was made a hundred years ago and then he fined the man five shillings and paid the fine himself when he should have sent him to the workhouse for six months the men who have most benefited the world have almost without exception been looked down upon by the priestly class and that is to say the men upon whose tombs society now carves the word savior were outcasts and criminals in their day in society where the priest is regarded as the mouthpiece of divinity and therefore the highest type of man the artist the inventor the discoverer the genius the man of truth has always been regarded as a criminal society advances as it doubts the priest distrusts his oracles and loses faith in his institution in the priest at first was deposited all human knowledge and what he did not know he pretended to know he was the guardian of mind and morals and the cure of souls to question him was to die here and be damned for eternity the problem of civilization has been to get the truth past the preacher to the people he has forever barred and blocked the way and until he was shorn of his temporal power there was no hope the prisons were first made for those who doubted the priest behind and beneath every episcopal residence were dungeons the ferocious and delicate tortures that reached every physical and mental nerve were his his anathemas and curses were always quickly turned upon the strong men of mountain or sea who dared live natural lives said what they thought was truth or did what they deemed was right science is a search for truth but theology is a clutch for power nothing is so distasteful to a priest as freedom a happy exuberant fearless self-sufficient and radiant man he both feared and abhorred a free soul was regarded by the church as one to be dealt with the priest has ever put a premium on pretense and hypocrisy nothing recommended a man more than humility and the acknowledgment that he was a worm of the dust the ability to do and dare was in itself considered a proof of depravity the education of the young has been monopolized by priests in order to perpetuate the fallacies of theology and all endeavor to put education on a footing of usefulness and utility has been fought inch by inch andrew d white in his book the warfare of science and religion has calmly and without heat sketched the war that science has had to make to reach the light slowly stubbornly insolently theology has fought truth step by step but always retreating taking refuge first behind one subterfuge and then another when an alleged fact was found to be a fallacy we were told it was not a literal fact simply a spiritual one all of theology's weapons have been taken from her and placed in the museum of horrors all save one namely social ostracism 
and this consists in a refusal to invite science to indulge in cream puffs we smile knowing that the man who now successfully defies theology is the only one she really yet secretly admires if he does not run after her she holds true the poetic unities by running after him mankind is emancipated or partially so darwin's fame rests for the most part on two books the origin of species and the descent of man and yet before these were published he had issued a journal of research into geology and natural history the zoology of the voyage of the beagle a treatise on coral reefs volcanic islands geographical observations and a monograph of the Cirripedia. had darwin died before the origin of species was published he would have been famous among scientific men although it was the abuse of theologians on the publication of the origin of species that really made him world famous alfred russell wallace darwin's chief competitor said that a monograph on the Cirripedia is enough upon which to found a deathless reputation darwin was equally eminent in geology botany and zoology on november twenty fourth eighteen hundred fifty nine was published the origin of species murray had hesitated about accepting the work but on the earnest solicitation of sir charles lyell who gave his personal guarantee to the publisher against loss quite unknown to darwin twelve hundred copies of the book were printed the edition was sold in one day and who was surprised most the author or the publisher it is difficult to say up to this time theology had stood solidly on the biblical assertion that mankind had sprung from one man and one woman and that in the beginning every species was fixed and immutable aristotle three hundred years before christ had suggested that by cross-fertilization and change of environment new species had been and were being evoked but the church had declared aristotle a heathen and in every school and college of christendom it was taught that the world and everything in it was created in six days of twenty-four hours each and that this occurred four thousand and four years before christ on may tenth those who doubted or disputed this statement had no standing in society and in truth until the beginning of the nineteenth century were in actual danger of death heresy and treason being usually regarded as the same thing Erasmus Darwin had taught that species were not immutable, but his words were so veiled in the language of poesy that they naturally went unchallenged. But now the grandson of Dr. Erasmus Darwin came forward with a net result of thirty years of continuous work. The origin of species did not attack anyone's religious belief. In fact, in it, the biblical account of creation is not once referred to it was a calm judicial record of close study and observation that seemed to prove that life began in very lowly forms and that it has constantly ascended and differentiated new forms and new species being continually created and that the work of creation still goes on in the preface to the origin of species darwin gives alfred russell wallace credit for coming to the same conclusion as himself and states that both had been at work on the same idea for more than a score of years but each working separately unknown to the other 
Andrew D. White says that the publication of Charles Darwin's book was like plowing into an anthill. The theologians, rudely awakened from comfort and repose, swarmed out angry, wrathful, and confused. The air was charged with challenges and soggy sermons. Books, pamphlets, brochures, and reviews all were flying at the head of poor Darwin. The questions that he had anticipated and answered at great length were flung off by men who had neither read his book nor expected an answer. The idea that man had evolved from a lower form of animal especially was considered immensely funny, and jokes about monkey ancestry came from almost every pulpit, convulsing the pews with laughter. In passing it may be well to note that Darwin nowhere says that man descended from a monkey. He does, however, affirm his belief that they had a common ancestor. One branch of the family took to the plains and evolved into men, and the other branch remained in the woods and are monkeys still. The expression, the missing link, is nowhere used by Darwin. That was a creation of one of his critics. Wilberforce, Bishop of Oxford, summed up the argument against Darwinism in the Quarterly Review by declaring that Darwin was guilty of an attempt to limit the power of God, that his book contradicts the Bible, that it dishonors nature, and in a speech before the British Association for the Advancement of Science, where Darwin was not present, the bishop repeated his assertions, and turning to Huxley asked if he were really descended from a monkey, and if so, was it on his father's or his mother's side? Huxley sat silent, refusing to reply, but the audience began to clamor, and Huxley slowly arose, and calmly but forcibly said, I assert, and I repeat, that a man has no reason to be ashamed of having an ape for his grandfather. If there were an ancestor whom I should feel shame in recalling, it would be a man, a man of restless and versatile intellect, who, not content with success in his own sphere of activity, plunges into scientific questions with which he has no real acquaintance, only to obscure them by an aimless rhetoric, and distract the attention of his hearers from the real point at issue by eloquent digression and a skilful appeal to religious prejudices. Captain Fitzroy, who was present at this meeting, was also called for. He was now Admiral Fitzroy, and felt compelled to uphold his employer the state, and so he upheld the state religion, and backed up the Bishop of Oxford in his emptiness. I often had occasion on board the Beagle to reprove Mr. Darwin for his disbelief in the first chapter of Genesis, solemnly, said the Admiral, and Francis Darwin writes it down without comment, probably to show how much the volunteer naturalist was helped, aided, and inspired by the captain of the expedition. But the reply of Huxley was a shot heard round the world, and for the most part the echo was passed along by the enemy. Huxley had insulted the church, they said, and the adherents of the Mosaic account took the attitude of outraged and injured innocence. As for himself, Darwin said nothing. He ceased to attend the meetings of the scientific societies for fear that he would be drawn into debate and while he felt a sincere gratitude for Huxley's friendship, he depreciated the stern rebuke to the Bishop of Oxford. It will arouse the opposition to greater unreason, he said, and this was exactly what happened. 
Even the English Catholics took sides with Wilberforce, the Protestant, and Cardinal Manning organized a society to fight this new so-called science that declares there is no God and that Adam was an ape. Even the nonconformists and Jews came in, and there was the very peculiar spectacle witnessed of the Church of England, the nonconformists, the Catholics, and the Jews, aroused and standing as one man against one quiet villager who remained at home, and said, If my book cannot stand the bombardment, why then it deserves to go down and be forgotten. Spurgeon declared that Darwinism was more dangerous than open and avowed infidelity, since the one motive of the whole book is to dethrone God. Rabbi Hirschberg wrote, Darwin's volume is plausible to the unthinking person, but a deeper insight shows a mephitic desire to overthrow the Mosaic books and to bury Judaism under the mass of fanciful rubbish. In America, Darwin had no more persistent critic than the Reverend DeWitt Talmage. For ten years, Dr. Talmage scarcely preached a sermon without making reference to monkey ancestry and baboon unbelievers. The New York Christian advocate declared, Darwin is endeavoring to becloud and befog the whole question of truth, and his book will be of a short life. An eminent Catholic physician and writer, Dr. Constantine James, wrote a book of three hundred pages called Darwinism or the Man-Ape. A copy of Dr. James's book being sent to Pope Pius IX, the Pope acknowledged it in a personal letter, thanking the author for his masterly refutations of the vagaries of this man Darwin, wherein the Creator is left out of all things, and man proclaims himself independent, his own king, his own priest, his own god, and then degrading man to the level of the brute by declaring he had the same origin, and this origin was lifeless matter. Could folly and pride go further than to degrade science into a vehicle for throwing contumely and disrespect on our holy religion? This makes rather interesting reading now for those who believe in the infallibility of popes. So well did Dr. James' book sell, coupled with the approbation of the Pope, that as late as 1882 a new and enlarged edition made its appearance, and the author was made a member of the Papal Order of St. Sylvester. It is quite needless to add that those who read Dr. James' book, Refuting Darwin, had never read Darwin, since The Origin of Species was placed on the Index Expurgatorius in 1860. Some years after, when it was discovered that Darwin had written other books, these were likewise honored. The book on barnacles was being called to the attention of the censor that worthy exclaimed, Some new heresy, I dare say, put it on the index, and it was so done. The success of Dr. James' book reveals the popularity of the form of reasoning that digests the refutation first, and the original proposition not at all. In 1875, Gladstone, in an address at Liverpool, said, Upon the ground of what is called evolution, God is relieved from the labor of creation and of governing the universe. Herbert Spencer called Gladstone's attention to the fact that Sir Isaac Newton, with his law of gravitation and the physical science of astronomy, was open to the same charge. Gladstone then took refuge in the contemporary review and retreated in a cloud of words that had nothing to do with the subject. Thomas Carlyle, who has facetiously been called a liberal thinker, had not the patience to discuss Darwin's book seriously, but grew red in the face and hissed in falsetto when it was even mentioned. 
he wrote of darwin as the apostle of dirt and said he thinks his grandfather was a chimpanzee and i suppose he is right leastwise i am not the one to deprive him of the honor scathing criticisms were uttered on darwin's ideas both on the platform and in print by dr noah porter of yale dr hodge of princeton and dr taylor lewis of union college agassiz the man who was regarded as the foremost scientist in america thought he had to choose between orthodoxy and darwinism and he chose orthodoxy his gifted son tried to rescue his father from the grip of prejudice and later endeavored to free his name from the charge that he could not change his mind but alas louis agassiz's words were expressed in print and widely circulated there were two men in america whose names stand out like beacon lights because they had the courage to speak up loud and clear for charles darwin while the pack was being the loudest and these men were dr asa gray who influenced the appletons to publish an american edition of the origin of species and professor edward l yeomans who gave up his own brilliant lecture work in order that he might stand by darwin spencer huxley and wallace for the man who was known as a darwinian there was no place in the american lyceum shut out from addressing the public by word of mouth yeomans founded a magazine that he might express himself and he fired a monthly broadside from his popular science monthly and it is good to remember that the faith of yeomans was not without its reward he lived to see his periodical grow from a confessed failure a bill of expense that took his monthly salary to maintain to a paying property that made its owner passing rich gray too outlived the charge of infidelity and was not forced to resign his position as professor at harvard as was freely prophesied he would as for darwin himself he stood the storm of misunderstanding and abuse without scorn or resentment truth must fight its way he said and this gauntlet of criticism is all for the best what is true in my book will survive and that which is error will be blown away as chaff he was neither exalted by praise nor cast down by censure for huxley lyle hooker spencer wallace and asa gray he had a great and profound love what they said affected him deeply and their steadfast kindness at times touched him to tears for the great seething outside world that had not thought along abstruse scientific lines and could not he cared little how can we expect them to see as we do he wrote to gray it has taken me thirty years of toil and research to come to these conclusions to have the unthinking masses accept all that i say would be calamity this opposition is a winnowing process and all a part of the law of evolution that works for good for forty years darwin lived in the same house at down in the same quiet simple way here he lived and worked and the world gradually came to him figuratively and literally gradually it dawned upon the theologians that a god who could set in motion natural laws that worked with beneficent and absolute regularity was just as great as if he had made everything at once and then stopped the miracle of evolution is just as sublime as the miracle of adam's deep sleep and the making of a woman out of a man's rib the faith of the scientist who sees order regularity and unfailing law is quite as great as that of a preacher who believes everything he reads in a book the scientist is a man with faith plus 
When Darwin died in 1882, Darwinism and infidelity were words no longer synonymous. The discrepancies and inconsistencies of the theories of Darwin were seen by him as by his critics, as he was ever willing to admit the doubt. None of his disciples was as ready to modify his opinions as he. We must beware of making science dogmatic, he once said to Haeckel. And at another time he said, I would feel I had gone too far were it not for Wallace, who came to the same conclusions quite independently of me. Darwin's mind was simple and childlike. He was a student, always learning, and no one was too mean or too poor for him to learn from. The patience, persistency, and untiring industry of the man combined with a daring imagination that saw the thing clearly long before he could prove it, and the gentle forbearance in the presence of unkindness and misunderstanding, won the love of a nation. He wished to be buried in the churchyard at Down, but at his death, by universal acclaim, the gates of Westminster swung wide to receive the dust of the man whom bishops, clergy, and laymen alike had reviled. Darwin had won, not alone because he was right, but because he was a truly great and loving soul, a soul without the least resentment. Archdeacon Farrar, quoting Huxley, said, I would rather be Darwin and be right than be premier of England. We have had and will have many premiers, but the world will never have another Darwin. End of section 12